0: Welcome to Miami Global Net Podcast, where we showcase the people and organizations that support Miami's international landscape. Learn from local business owners, startups, diplomats, and community leaders. Get to know the tools and services that are out there that help you invest and grow in South Florida. Miami is a true global city where one can live and do business with a global reach. Miamians listeners from around the world welcome to another episode of Miami Global Net. This is another episode of a deep dive here with the European American Chamber of Commerce. So I'm going to give it over to Christina so she can introduce our guest and get us started.
1: Thank you, Alejandro. Hello. My name is Christina Slezinska, and I'm the executive director of the EACC Florida. We are the Florida chapter of the European-American Chamber of Commerce, a platform where Americans and Europeans connect to do business. EACC provides resources, education, and updates on regulatory and legal developments of relevance to the transatlantic business community. We organize events on issues of interest to our constituency and offer unique connections and networking opportunities. We're very happy to partner with Miami Global Net on a pod- podcast series of deep dives focusing on big picture issues and how they affect transatlantic business activities. Today's deep dive will be on a burning issue, immigration as it relates to transatlantic business. We will look at how the most recent developments affect the operations of European companies in the US and or US companies in need of certain types of European expertise and know how. For this deep dive on immigration, we are delighted to have with us Scott Betridge, who is immigration practice chair at Cozen O'Connor's office in Miami. Kozen O'Connor is a full-service law firm accommodating the needs of the firm's clients in the U.S., Latin America, and Europe. And in his practice, Scott represents corporate and individual clients in all aspects related to U.S. immigration law. Kozen O'Connor is also a founding member of EACC Florida. So now, without further ado, I'll pass the floor to Alejandro Cervali, our host, here at Miami Global
0: Net. Thank you, Christina. Welcome, Scott. How are you? I'm good, Alejandro.
2: How are you? Thanks for
0: having me. Thank you for taking the time to join us here on this deep dive. I'm excited. Immigration is a hot topic.
2: Definitely uh, top of mind these days, for sure. Definitely a lot of a lot of issues going on, whether it's uh, in the newspaper or as you see with individuals, travel issues, uh, COVID-related, some not COVID-related been a challenging few years, especially for everyone, but uh, some of of us in the immigration context a little bit more than others. I've been practicing immigration law my entire career, probably more than 25 years. Initially, I was in New York City with a large boutique immigration firm, took me to the West Coast for a few years before relocating to Miami. And I would honestly say that over the last two or three years, it has been more challenging than ever from an immigration perspective um, as a a practitioner on a day-to-day basis to deal with with the issues and ongoing changes that we see these days.
0: Was it work the only reason you came down to Miami?
2: Yes, I was with, as I said, a a large boutique immigration firm. I'd moved around a couple of times with them out to the West Coast, back to New York City, uh, and then moved to Miami with them probably about 2007. Joined Cozen a few years later, as Christina mentioned, I chair the firm's national immigration practice. But yes, that's what what brought
0: me to Miami uh, initially. Awesome. Awesome. Well, let's dive right in then. Sure. So I have my first question. What are the broad immigration categories into the U.S. and how are they different?
2: I would honestly say that aside from just, you know, you have individuals that come to the U.S. and enter as a temporary, vis- a temporary visitor, whether that's for work or for business or tourism, you know, there's just a handful of broad ways in which someone can enter the U.S. and stay more long term. Those are either through an employer-sponsored petition or visa, um, a family-sponsored application under, technically under family reunification, there are investor petitions, options for investors and entrepreneurs and small business to establish entities in the U.S. Uh, There's also what's called the diversity visa lottery, which is basically called the green card lottery, which, um, you know, individuals, there's 50,000 visas a year for individuals that's generally underserved countries can apply through the green card lottery. You know, that said, you know, we generally ourselves, my practice is more of a corporate immigration practice where we assist large multinational organizations with their global mobility program related issues, ranging from employment visas, green cards, to the immigration impact of mergers, acquisitions, I 9 compliance. So, from an employer perspective, rather than even the list of more broad categories, employers can sponsor individuals as intercompany transferees, those that have worked with their company outside the U.S. and look to transfer here. They can sponsor professionals with degrees, and they can also sponsor those individuals that are extraordinary in their field. So employers have a subcategory, if you will, of the the employment side. They have a handful of different options.
0: Immigration in the U.S. sometimes is frequently described as broken. In a nutshell, can you share with us three or five reasons why the system is considered this way?
2: Sure. Um, I, I, sadly, Alejandro, I probably, if you asked me this question perhaps 10 years ago, I'd probably say many of the same things now, as I would have said then. Our current immigration system, I think, is badly broken in many, many facets, and then it's in dire need, I think, of a top-to-bottom overhaul. Initially, I would say immigration laws are really out mm-hmm. of sync with you know 21st century realities, especially on the technology side. There's, there's a governing body for immigration lawyers. It's called an AILA, um, the American Immigration Lawyers Association. And they like to say that, you know, the broken system, the broken immigration system, if you will, have given rise to this underground economy of criminal smugglers and fake documents and millions of undocumented individuals who are vulnerable to many forms of exploitation is, as we see in the newspapers, I think the borders are unmanageable to a certain extent. We're able to, to focus on enforcement issues, I think, some of, most of the time. But I think the biggest issue that I see, and I think that is more practical, are that the immigration system is plagued by delays, backlogs, dysfunction. I think close family members are separated for years, even decades. I think businesses lack access to workers. They need to, to either grow the business or to remain open. I would say in the last number of years, immigration raids and mass detentions to an extent are, are now part of general landscape in immigration. I, and I get that it's a it's a compelling, it's a controversial issue. And the role immigration laws are always changing. They're complicated. It has led many individuals to probably come to the U.S. without a proper status because it's complicated. You know, some people call immigrants who come to the U.S. without the proper papers illegals. I, you know, I think even another part of the system that's broken is that's in a very offensive term. Um, I think the more acceptable term is undocumented since they don't have the right documents. I'd probably say it's estimated that there's 11 million undocumented folks in the United States. I think, and I just read something last week that those numbers are probably grossly understated and that it's more upwards of 30, 35 million. I, sadly, I just don't think we have a, a real way of knowing. Um, I give you a, a couple of examples, I think on a more practical term of what I deal with on, on a regular basis. So obviously during COVID and everyone's working from home, you know, immigration attorneys had to be functionally working or in their office if they could. You know, Most other at facets of law changed to allow for Zoom meetings like we're having now, um, Zoom hearings. We still had to file immigration documents, hard copy, By mail, having original signatures in duplicate, they don't allow for electronic payments of filing fees. You still had to have a hard check. I still had to come into my office, and you know we were coming in at four a.m., five a.m. on hours off hours to get in. Responses from immigration come through snail mountains, regular mail. Uh, It's just it's 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 challenging. There's so many aspects I would say that that are are in need of of change. There's another part of the process in order to qualify individuals as. Uh, Green card holders. You have to test the U.S. labor market to show there's no qualified, willing, or able U.S. workers to do that job. Well, the inherent process and the standard to do that is a company putting in Sunday print ads into a newspaper. (laughs) That's how you show that there's recruitment, not online. You can use online advertising, but it's mandatory that you use a Sunday newspaper print ad. It's just, I think, it's outdated. It's archaic. It's, it's just, it's in need of change in many different ways.
0: Gotcha. Makes sense. The previous administration, I understand there were several executive orders that um, that were passed. Can you explain a little bit about what they are and how they are impacting immigration, especially coming from Europe? Sure.
2: I, I would probably start back in, you know, maybe about March of 2020, 2020, the Trump administration issued a presidential proclamation which limited the entry of any and all individuals who were physically present in the Schengen area during the 14-day period which preceded their their attempted entry or entry into the United States. Obviously, the Schengen area includes mostly all European countries. Um, And it's important to note, sometimes it was misread and and, and misstated in, in in the news that it wasn't a ban on certain nationalities. It wasn't a ban on French citizens or on EU citizens. It wasn't a ban on Swiss nationals. It was a ban on any individual who had been physically present in one of those countries. You could have had an Australian citizen who was physically present in the UK, and they were subject to this ban. They covered the Schengen area, but they also covered in England, Scotland, and, and Brazil, and China. At the same time, there was a separate ban of entry into the US of all visa holders, like H-1B workers, L-1 transfers. And those continued up till till March of 2021. What was less publicized, I would say, was that the Trump administration actually ended those bans, especially the ones for the Schengen area in the UK, right before Trump left office. And then Biden began uh, and reinstated the bans right after inauguration, which meaning that it continually stayed in effect technically. These proclamations were really issued to be able to evaluate, if you will, worldwide COVID-19 travel restrictions, public health guidance, et cetera. And the only way really around the bans at the time fell under what's called national interest exceptions. So if you could show that even though you were physically present in the Schengen area, but, and subject to this proclamation, proclamations didn't apply to U.S. citizens, uh, children, parents of U.S. citizens, green card holders. This was just strictly individuals holding employment visas, students, academics, journalists, There was this exception to the proclamation that said, if you're coming to the U.S. to work in a critical infrastructure sector, then you could apply to have, in the national interest, you can have the the suspension not be applicable to you. So you were talking about those in chemical industries, critical manufacturing, energy, financial services, information technology. But as a result of these national interest exceptions to the COVID ban, in reality, what happened was that you you had investors, you had intercompany managers, you had essential workers, um, those individuals who were extending their visas to be refused. The suspensions have been been challenging. I think there's a there's been a general over overthought that these suspensions would have been lifted by the Biden administration. And I think as long as COVID continues to exist, I think these bans are going to stay until some good evidence, anyway, that that um, maybe vaccinations are, are at a higher level. I think COVID, it also brought about a travel halt, right? I mean, there was an abrupt halt to, to any foreigners coming to the U.S., whether that was legal or illegal or for leisure, for business. Let's say you had European expats working for a European or U.S. company in the U.S. or a European entrepreneur who was coming to the U.S. to establish or, or you know, do business here. I know that's something that, that you know, we also wanted to try to touch on. There's been some changes and it's, there's been
0: some ongoing issues so if if I'm a company in Florida what would you suggest are some key issues that I am being confronted with right now when I'm trying to bring an executive or workers with specific skill sets from Europe to the United States
2: there's a, there's a, there's a lot of different impact on, on uh, that companies are being faced with right now I think you know we're still seeing some issues with non-essential tourism um, you know via whether that's through Canada or Mexico we're seeing Many foreign nationals come from Europe even to enter, I've read the term, vaccination tourism. We're we're seeing companies with routine business travel start to pick up as well. So when you're looking at specific skilled workers from Europe, I'd say one of the primary issues that the travel restrictions are are impacting these companies is specifically those who don't possess a valid visa. Unless, as I mentioned before, unless these these individuals are otherwise exempt from travel bans, These individuals that are physically present in a third country in 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 the Schengen area, the Schengen area, um, you seek to travel to the U.S. Transfer those employees to the U.S. They've got to qualify under two options. They either have to spend 14 days in a third country not subject to those restrictions. Um, You know, generally, Mexico, Croatia have been more popular destinations for obvious reasons. Uh, or as we mentioned before, qualifying under these national interest exceptions for the these the segments uh, segments and population, um, but you know generally for temporary business travel, having to add an additional two weeks um, is it's imp- kind of impractical for a lot of employers. Some folks are coming here and intend to come here, even if it's just a business trip for less than two weeks. But you have to add two weeks; it's costly for the employer. So, um, U.S. embassies and consulates around the globe, which which I would say for the large part are still closed for many, many routine visa services have had to take, uh, you know, take on this onslaught of requests for these national interest exceptions. I think, I think most companies are trying to qualify any, any and every employee (laughs) as uh, under these national interest exceptions. Um, And that's all going on despite short staff backlogs and, and cases that have been sitting for months just due to the COVID backlogs, I think, to make matters more, more difficult for companies and employers is that the specific national interest exception process and application protocols at certain consulates or embassies are different. They're not standardized across the embassies. So each country has its own qualifications and some standards in place. In fact, I'd even say some embassies have zero guidance, specific guidance on their website or other, other links as to how to even satisfy these NIE criteria. So for businesses, for myself as a, as a U.S. immigration practitioner, you know it's cumbersome. It's hard to provide these companies predictability as to who would get approved, not, not to mention what's, what, when they'll finally be able to come to the U.S. and transfer to the U.S. to take on their often time-sensitive and business-critical activities. I'll give you an example. I've got a client who's applying for what's called an E-2 investor visa. Uh, this gentleman has invested about $275,000, $300,000, employees, a handful of U.S. workers, I want to say maybe two or three. He was in the U.S. until last month as a dependent on his wife's L-1 visa, and he was having challenges of renewing his, his L-2 work permit. Those familiar with immigration know what I'm talking about, I think, of with, with the delays in these in these spousal L work permits. So he left to the US. He went to Amsterdam to apply for his e-visa so that he could return to the US, resume employment with his company. Um, the embassy found that he qualified for the e-visa, but he didn't merit a national interest exception because the business didn't qualify for uh, the criteria in this essential sectors. So they refused to issue the visa. So he's waiting until he can get back in. He's trying to find other ways to, to, to spend time in a third country. And meanwhile, his business, his investment, his employees are now at risk, and we're seeing this all through the, the, the Schengen area. I think we've been all been trying to figure this out. Those of us that work in this industry, and, and I, I don't think we're closer to any real standard response. I mean, for this gentleman, this is life changing. This is this has this has impacted him, his workers. Um, you know, upon the issuance of the visa, there's nothing to say that the applicants couldn't quarantine outside the Schengen area, or comply with whatever COVID-19 precautions are required, that's what the actual proclamation requires. But they're not even issued a visa unless they meet this criteria. So there's really no logical reason, given that visitors from other countries can come in with the same same issues and have no, no problems with qualifying to come in as a business visitor. But when you're coming in solely like to run a business based on this investment, you can't get approved. I mean, this is not about just stopping COVID, this is about, you know, we allow those to come in here to come in as a visitor and get their vaccination. Um, But those running a business uh, and and have invested in companies here, they have employees here. I I just, you know, companies are struggling to understand that justification. Um, There's even lawsuits now, which are challenging the legality, if you will, of barring visas from people subject to these travel bans. So again, these, the proclamations are not, they're banning based on presence in a country and not based on nationality. So if someone wants to go to another country for 14 days outside of the Schengen area and then enter the U.S., there shouldn't be an issue. But the State Department's barring visas for those people, even if they're willing to abide by that 14-day rule. So companies, European companies in particular, um, are finding this very challenging to get their their essential workers to the U.S. Um, These are their managers. These are executives. These are employees that have specialized skills, specialized knowledge. Um, They have proprietary knowledge of, of how the company does business. And they can't seem to get visas to come to the U.S., but yet, you know, their cousin Scott wants to come in and get a visa, uh, get a vaccination. And he can do that. <laughs> it seems a little backwards.
0: I mean, I, I really hope that this thing gets cleared up so people can continue to do business. <laughs> <laughs> so um, following the EU and U.S. summit in June, you know, Europe has opened his, the borders to, to American travelers, but the U.S. hasn't done that yet right? Um, Can you provide some insight into that? What does the medium future or near future look like?
2: Yeah, I think think there's definitely growing calls for the US to lift restrictions on European travelers to the US. I mean, as you mentioned, when President Biden met with European leaders in Brussels last month, they did agree to remove travel restrictions on Americans entering Europe, but the US hasn't reciprocated. Um, The US remains almost entirely sealed off to many Europeans. So most organizations, some chambers, large global employers, they're calling on the administration to lift those travel restrictions. And I think I think there's a lot at stake. I think the travel sector has gotten hit really hard. Um, there's a lot of jobs that depend upon travel and hospitality that, that you need hospitality services to come back. And I think the only way that you're going to be able to do that and, and help the travel sector and, and from an economic perspective is to get the travel economy back up and running. If you can't, I think, if you can't, If the vast majority of consulates and embassies remain partially or completely closed, I think a lot of economic activity will be foregone if we don't allow people to start coming back here and start doing so in a safe and and predictable manner. I think when it comes to specifically lifting restrictions on tourists from Europe, I mean, there's studies out there, I think, that that I've I've seen that um, indicate that if nothing is done, Uh, to ease some of these entry restrictions uh, or increase processing times of visas, I I think the U.S. could stand to lose, I think it was $170 billion by the end of the year. Again, we've been talking about this. I think it's it's just incredibly difficult for people to get back to the U.S. And more often than not, it's individuals that are coming here for a work-based reason that can come here from Europe. But in terms of having large tourist groups, families being able to see relatives, um, that's not yet been able to come back in a major way. And I think until it does, we're going to have a cap on how high our economic growth can be and it's going to limit the overall economic recovery. You know, I do, I get the whole Delta variant on the increase everywhere. Folks are asking, is it really wise to open the borders to Europeans or anyone for that matter at this point? And I don't know whether, you know, you're pro or anti-vaccination. Clearly we realize that, that it's a key way to stop the transmission. Variants here. Vaccines have been effective, until we can safely lift entry restrictions and restart international travel. That may only happen once procedures are in place to remove these entry restrictions, at least on the areas that are low risk countries. Right? I mean, I I just don't think it's this blanket shouldn't be this blanket Schengen area visa suspension. If there's if there's certain countries that are that have become more safe in the Schengen area, let's not just do this blanket you know, suspension, let's try to limit to certain countries. But I definitely, I think it totally does boil down to what vaccinations are available in, let's say, European countries is that vaccination type trusted. Once vaccinated, I think it's a pretty good benchmark to ensure someone's coming here presents a pretty low risk to, to others getting infected. But, but I think once it does, once it does reopen, I think restoring European travel to the U.S. is going to be a great boost to the economy. Um, The hospitality industry as a whole, and I think it has a residual impact, a benefit um, on other sectors as well.
0: I mean, I certainly understand, especially down here in Miami, we are a very heavily service oriented uh, city. You know, I mean, the the plethora of international consulates in the area, just in the city of Miami borders alone, is is a testament to the amount of international, especially European um, countries are represented here. Right. So Miami is will be one of the first to benefit from the opening and, and access for the Europeans to come to Miami to be able to see their family members and also come here to Miami and enjoy our sunny beaches.
2: The hospitality industry would, would, would greatly appreciate it. And, and that would do a wonderful have a wonderful impact on South Florida in general.
0: Well, Scott, we're running out of time. I have one more question for you. What is your favorite part of Miami?
2: My favorite part of Miami, I I'd have to say it's the it's the water and access to the water. I think um, you know the ability just to 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 take in the fresh air and and there's a benefit to living by the beach and uh, and taking advantage of all that has to offer. I think um, I think sometimes we lose track as to how special that is. So, you know, commute back and forth, uh, you know, in our cars or by train, and and not you know, take a few minutes to be able to walk around. Again, I grew up in New York city, so I'm a walker. I like the trains, but at the same time I like to be out and, you know, it's always great to be, uh, to be near the water at some
0: point. Scott, thank you so much. It's been great to have you. And Christina, let me thank you again for the European American chamber of commerce, joining us and doing this deep dive, Scott, thank you. Immigration. I know is a very difficult and challenging topic nowadays. And thank you for taking the time to, uh, to explain it to us. I'm gonna hand it over to Christina for uh, closing comments.
1: Yeah, thank you so much Alejandro for inviting ACC Florida to partner with Miami Global Net on this deep dive on immigration and many thanks to scott betridge for sharing uh, your expertise and insights on some of those developments on immigration with our listeners uh, it's been really interesting i've learned many things and you know i too am uh, in a way a victim of some of those issues you know it's, we haven't been able to get back to europe in almost 2 years and we have at least 30 friends who have not been able to come and visit us i mean they all had their flights canceled last year. So, you know, we are also hoping that, um, you know, of course on the professional side uh, that for the companies uh, that the solutions are are found uh, sooner rather than later. And and maybe the vaccine is is going to be the key to that. Anyway, our next uh, deep dive will be on financial services. So you can find further details about our experts, Miami Global Net and EACC Florida in the podcast notes. Please check our EACC Florida website for upcoming programs and information on how to join and subscribe to Miami Global Net to find out more about Miami's international community.